Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and my guest in this conversation is Scott Young. Since 2006, Scott has deeply explored the question of how one can best learn by writing in long form both on his own site and with major publications. In 2019, Scott published Ultra Learning, a Wall Street Journal bestselling book on how to rapidly learn difficult skills and the principles behind great learning. I absolutely loved that book. I highly recommend it. It will teach you some of the essential principles that you can then apply to any of your learning projects going forward. Now, in addition to his writing, Scott's completed two very well-known public learning experiments. The MIT Challenge, where he attempted to learn all of MIT's four-year computer science curriculum in less than one year with no classes, and the Year Without English, where he attempted to learn four languages in a year and speak no English. Now, in this conversation, we cover a lot of ground about how to practically acquire new skills and learn in just the messy reality of real life, as opposed to some, you know, theoretically perfect learning situation. So whether you're a new parent trying to carve out time for that side project, or you're a swamped product leader who just needs to learn something new to take your product team to the next level. Or hey, maybe you just wish you'd finally make progress on learning Spanish or whatever that language is for you. This episode's going to help you. Please enjoy Scott Young. All right, Scott, officially welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's it's a real pleasure to have you. Your book, Ultra Learning, was one of the ones that I eagerly anticipated, like I told you when we first connected. I was originally introduced to your work through Cal Newport, who I know you're, you're friends with and have done a lot mm-hmm. of really interesting projects with. So I've just been a, a big time fan for, for years now, all the way going back to like your learning courses and Top Performer. The, I think it was in the first cohort of that. So anyways, it's just a real pleasure to have you here. And, and thanks for making some time. Oh, yeah, no problem. So I, I think a fun place to start might be in where this all started for you. You're known, I think, for for doing a lot of, let's shall we say, unconventional learning challenges and, and, and sort of independent creative projects. And, you know, it's it really strikes me that you're someone who kind of has found a way to chart your own course from a from an intellectual path. And I think that's actually really hard to do in, yeah. in like our modern world, right? Like it's just always trying to like force you into this box that everybody else is in. Like where did that come from for you? Were were you always like that? Did your parents model that for you? I you know what I don't know. I mean, like I think my parents definitely um they were both uh, elementary school teachers, so I think learning was always important and it kind of as an intrinsic value, but I don't know. I think I think that there's been some little twists in my life that have put me on an interesting path in some ways, and some of it's also probably just me. Um, I definitely think mm-hmm. that coming, coming into blogging sort of early 2000s was a weird time. Um, because nowadays, I mean, it's, it's weird because I have these conversations now about stuff that I did 10 years ago. And for a lot of people, the, the internet changes so quickly that the context in which that was done is also erased now. So it also seems like extra weird. Um, <laughs> but there was a real period of time in that early days where you could be like an a professional amateur. Like you could be someone <laughs> who just sets up a website and just starts clickety clack and people would read you. And part of that was just that uh, the online space was so new. Part of it was that it, it really was a frontier of, of kind of just like <laughs> random internet weirdos yeah. like myself. Um, <laughs> but also there was a lot of like creativity and, and this kind of like rough and ready creativity, like not just, you know, 
you know, people writing these super polished essays, but just kind of people throwing stuff together and like, well, this is cool. I'm going to try this out. And so I think it was a real creative moment. And, uh, you know, I was just happy that I, I kind of got to be a part of it in some way. And so I think that was part of it for me is that I started as a, I even, I started my blog even in uh, my last year of high school, but a lot of it was when I was a university student. And so I think it really just charted my entire adult life. Like it started out being about learning in part because that's what I spent a lot of time doing. I was in school. And and so that was one of the few things that I could talk about. And then after I graduated, I was really drawn to people like Benny Lewis, who was doing these Fluent in Three Months projects. Mm, yeah, um, Steve Pavlina had done a few of these kind of like live blogging challenges. He's done a lot of like, like just totally bonkers stuff. Yeah, but, he's done some weird stuff, but interesting. But I mean, but I mean, I loved the kind of like voyeuristic here. I'm yeah. going to do something weird. This is what's going to happen. Um, totally. especially as a contrast to the more, um, you know, here's me sort of pontificating from an altar of wisdom kind of self-help advice. So in that sort of spectrum of advice, um, blogging and, and people who are, you know, telling people what they should do with their lives. I really <laughs> liked that. Well, I'm going to go out and do this and then tell you how it worked. And I, 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 there's a freshness to that that I think I appreciated mm. as opposed to a, you know, I'm so great. This is what you should be doing kind of perspective, which I think it yeah. was very common, you know, like as a contrast to let's say like the Tony Robbins sort of standing on a stage, <laughs> thump your chest, you know, yep. it was like, I I'm, you know, I'm going to do this thing that seems kind of intense and weird. And I'm just going to tell you what happens as it happens. And so I, I really liked that. So Steve Pavlina was a big early influence. I think even like Tim Ferriss, you know, I think Tim Ferriss was a little different in my opinion, because Tim Ferriss, uh, was largely doing these like retrospectives. So he would like do something and then he would mm -hmm. do a little write up. But I mean, he was obviously huge in the early blogosphere for, for doing these kind of projects. And I mean, it really was a time where lots of people were doing these things. Like I, I had a friend who like, you know, talking about going on the moment. Like I had a friend who was like, I'm going to like, um, I think he was like, he started some project where he was going to go on like every roller coaster in America or something. Like, <laughs> like this was a time period where that was something that people would do, you know? And so, I think all of the challenges that I've done have to be seen in light of that context, that that was the mm. background of activity. Now, um, I do think that there's lessons to be maybe drawn from my projects beyond just uh, internet blogging stunts. But yeah. I think the, the context of internet blogging stunts needs to be appreciated for them because otherwise they seem really weird. Like when I talk about this yeah, MIT yeah, yeah. challenge, it's like, well, why, 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 why are you trying to do it in a year? Like, why are you trying to do it? Yeah. Like, like what is this like, thing? That's what everyone was doing. You know, that's what I, <laughs> that's my model. That's my, like the people who I'm listening to right now are all these other weirdos who are You're trying like, yeah, to it like, it's weird and crazy, but that was what no, we were is. all doing. But it is, but it was like, that's, Oh, that's interesting, you know? Yeah. And so, and, and I think that was a big part of it, but I do feel like, um, you know, the, the, the motivation for these is not just attention seeking. It's, it's because these things are really interesting. And so the attention seeking was like a way I could justify it to myself professionally. <laughs> so I think sometimes the cynic will sort of say, Oh, well, you're just doing this kind of thing just to get like, you know, marketing or publicity, but it's more that like, here's something I wanted to do. And the fact that it can get a little bit of marketing and publicity for it makes it a professionally worthwhile yeah. activity. <laughs> so, so it is really kind of the opposite. I think I, I probably would have, you know, like, 
if if it was just sort of not a, not an obstacle to have resources or, or 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 things that needed to be important professionally, you know, I think I I do tons of these projects. Like they're just they're just things that are fun for me. But um, but anyways, we can get into it. But I think I think setting that stage is important because if you fast forward to today. I just feel like the internet's a different place. Like it's, mm. um, you know, this is pre, like I, I started my blog before I had heard of Facebook, you know, or I'm not sure what Facebook maybe existed a little bit before, but it was definitely like, it wasn't a thing people used. YouTube wasn't a thing. Yeah, um, before you know, Instagram, just, before TikTok, before Twitter. Oh, yeah. Instagram and TikTok. That's like, I'm, I'm a dinosaur now, but one of the things I think you did, you were clearly really early on in that model that you were doing. Mm. Like, yeah, in one sense there was like, yeah, let me go do this really weird thing, but I'm going to yeah. tell you about it. Um, you know, it's funny. Because like today we call that like build in public, right? Like that's like one of the, the hot terms du jour at the moment. But it's it's like the same thing. It's like, oh, I'm going to go learn this stuff and I'm going to tell you what's yeah. happening along the way. Um, you tended to do it in a more like rigorous deep dive kind of way. Um, but, you know, in a lot of ways, I think you were kind of a kind of pioneering that model. Well, I don't know. I, I like I don't see myself as a pioneer. I was definitely a follower in that. But I think that the challenges I had had some unique aspects, which I think made me um, a bit different. But definitely they're like... I'm not, I didn't invent this. This was like something I'm looking around and I'm like, oh, this is what people are doing to make content. And this is like, as a consumer of content, as a consumer of like people writing about ideas and advice and and this kind of stuff, I was like, this is much better content. Like I would much rather read, you know, Benny Lewis's day by day, Mm -hmm. you know, here's how I'm trying to learn Polish in three months than, you know, some guy, some linguist or something being like, this is the correct way to learn a language you know this is the one true way it's well it's not even that it's just that i think there is a vicarious quality to it you know that like you 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 get to go along for the ride and so i don't know there's there are still people doing this stuff i don't want to say that that has died out but i think um i think that is an important kind of stage to set because i think what's happened in the internet over the last like 15 years or so has been, uh, I would say, a professionalization of content. So you have, Mm. like, nowadays, when I write an essay, I compete with the New York Times at the Atlantic and, you know, journalists who were top of their class at Harvard and, you know, uh, like, can ring up Bill Gates on the phone and stuff. Like, it's a different environment, whereas the landscape, when I was doing it, was, like, people writing crappy 200-word blog posts (laughs) 15 times a day. And that's, like, that was was the backdrop. So so I I do think that that context is important but i mean for me learning and how do you learn more effectively has just been an ongoing interest and and so being able to organize my professional life around that uh, has been really great you know and i I think it's definitely there's some trade-offs for for like my kind of career Mm -hmm. versus a more traditional sort of academic path but um but i think there's also a lot of a lot of advantages to uh you know i definitely get a little bit more flexible oh 100 percent You know, I think it'd be good to set a stage just for anybody who isn't Mm -hmm. familiar with your work already. Because, you know, I'm a huge nerd for learning and I think it's just like the bee's knees. But a lot of people are like more, let's just be honest, like they have less time to throw at this or they're less Mm -hmm. willing to throw time at this than I am. And I think that's seems like that's some of the way your work is evolving, right? Of, okay, great. Like, how do we really help anybody be a super effective learner despite the complexities of real life? I last encountered your work on a a really big public way with with your last book. Mm -hmm. And I know you're working 
working on a second book. So I'm curious, you know, maybe talk <laughs> yeah. to me a little bit about how has your approach or your thinking evolved since the book came out? Is there anything you would kind of change about it now or, or where yeah. are we meeting you today? Not, not really. I don't think I like the book was sort of a culmination of a lot of um, thinking on that topic. So I don't think there's been a lot of places where it's sort of like, I was completely wrong about this and then like, you're going to change it. I do think there's nuances I didn't appreciate, but I think that's true of any subject as you learn more about it. I think there's like little, little, like little things that it was like, Oh, okay. You know, this is a little different from this. And I would suggest this in a different way, but I mean, you know, broad strokes at the level at which most people would read the book. I don't think there's anything I would change, but I think there's also a topic focus for the book. I think like ultra learning was in, in my, it was my attempt to kind of capture this phenomenon that was so important to me. And so, you know, I needed to write about it. Uh, it had such an influence in my life, but it was this idea of people taking on learning challenges. So some of it is this kind of blogosphere kind of people doing stunts, but I also wanted to try to pluck out people who I thought were very impressive and interesting. And there wasn't any of this kind of, let's call it like publicity taint that they weren't, they weren't like, well, this is some self promoter. And yeah. so they're, you know, maybe, you know, especially like online too, there, there's, there's definitely stuff that comes out there that, well, oh, well, is this person fibbing a little bit? And you're kind of like, eh, all right, I don't know whether, right. I, I, don't know whether yeah. I like this. <laughs> but there's lots of people who just straightforwardly have done very impressive things on objective bases. And the objectiveness of their accomplishment is what makes it impressive as opposed to like, you know, just them documenting it or, or something like that. And so I, I wanted to try to gather up these stories that had such a profound influence on me. And I wanted to try to pair that with some of the cognitive science of learning, which I think is is important and uh, definitely underappreciated by students. There's tons of stuff about how we learn. And this isn't just like a my special method for how we learn. This is just generally how everyone learns. And <laughs> this, this is what the research tells us about how humans yeah, learn this stuff. Is, and it's not understood, and it results in a lot of bad studying advice. So there's an aspect of ultra learning which is very kind of idiosyncratic and unique to me and this handful of, as I said, internet weirdos. Um, and, but those tend to be the things that are least important. Those are like kind of the intensity, the sort of, mm -hmm. as I said, the like choosing something that's kind of bizarre and super ambitious. But there's also a lot of stuff that's just it doesn't matter who you are you this is how this is how learning works so mm -hmm. if you're going to do it well then there's a good way of doing it and there's a bad way of doing it and that's just, totally. that's just it so yeah. i do think that there's flexibility on these principles i don't want to say that everything comes down to like there's only one way to learn things but i think um if you you know it's, it's a little bit like there's many different ways you can build a bridge but the principles of physics don't change right so yep. that's the same thing yep. with learning there's many different ways you can learn a subject but the principles of learning don't change so whatever you have to do you know, it's going to have to conform to those principles. And so this book was a, as an excuse to also kind of slide in some of that scientific research that I, that has been very important for me in, in executing these projects. And I think is something that uh, students and, and people in general need to know. Totally. For the listener, we're going to link to all this stuff in the show notes. And I highly encourage you to go get Scott's book. But Scott, for, just for someone mm -hmm. who hasn't read that book, if there was, I mean, you, you've got nine principles in there, which yeah. as you've laid out are kind of like, this is the sort of the bedrock mm -hmm. pieces of, of things you need to understand. But if there was one thing that you think you had to pick out for your average person listening to this, like which, which area would you zoom them in on? If like, you know, hey, here's the thing that you probably don't like here's what what is the thing people most commonly get wrong that that yeah. that they would uh, need to focus on? Oh man, there's lots. Uh, I think the one that is the 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 most um, 
misapplied, let's say, uh, would be retrieval. Um, because retrieval actually, it's, it's a, it's people engage in bad studying, um, strategies because of a cognitive illusion there that mm. there is an actual, um, kind of mistake or, or, or tendency to have a mistaken reasoning that leads you to pick badly the right way to study. So the basic idea of retrieval practice is that, um, if you want to remember something, you need to practice remembering it, not mm-hmm. just looking at it. Mm-hmm. And again, this sounds, yeah, okay, I sort of get that, but that's not how students study. How do students study? They read the book and then they go over their notes. And maybe if they're, you know, a little bit more sophisticated, they do some kind of thing with their notes. So it's out in front of them and they make a concept map or they, mm-hmm. you know, do some highlighting or they rewrite something or they, you know, reorganize. Or, but essentially... Mm-hmm. The basic difference between this and retrieval practice is that the information is in front of you and you're manipulating it. Mm-hmm. And what we know from uh, careful studies of memory is that the effectiveness of your studying effort is highly dependent on uh, what you're actually doing with your mind. And so one of the things that you're doing in a test is that you're given a question, you have to search your memory for the right answer. Uh, whereas when you have the material in front of you, you just have to look at it. And mm-hmm. so th- this is this is something that I think is a rather subtle point. And uh, there's a lot of, um, I think it's one of the ones that it's hardest to convince students to do this uh, regularly, because I'll even have students that they're really interested in learning techniques. And all the things they're doing are all this kind of open book studying. They're doing mm-hmm. like, I'm going to make a concept map, I'm going to highlight, I'm going to make these, you know, like Cal Newport calls it the colored folder fallacy, like yeah, I yeah, this yeah. complex organizational system. So this isn't simply a case of, well, students are lazy and they don't want to do something that's hard. I think it's actually just an, an actual illusion that they, they think that what they're doing is the most effective thing. Mm-hmm. We think re- we think reviewing is retrieval, but it's not. <laughs> well, we what what it is is that when you review, you become increasingly familiar with the material. So the processing difficulty gets goes down, down, down as you as you work on it. And because we don't actually have introspective access to how well we'll remember something later, that's not actually an ability we have. We can't just be like, okay, I'm in- encountering this right now. How well will I remember it later? We 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 just have to guess. And one of the w- things we use as a guess to figure out how well we'll remember something later is how difficult was it to understand or process this material? And when it's very difficult, we naturally correctly predict that we will understand it less. And that's true. But mm-hmm. the, where that's misleading is that if you just keep reading it over, it becomes much, much easier to, um, to read it, but you don't actually increase the, the sort of retrieval strength in your memory. And the basic idea here is that after you read something, you should try to do some kind of practice. And uh, in uh, a classic test situation, a real easy way to do this is to just do free recall, which means you close the book and you try to see what you can remember. Mm-hmm. And then you go back and you read it and you see what you missed. And this sort of loop of read, practice, feedback is mm-hmm. is basically most of learning kind of falls under this this schema. And so I think um, if you can kind of think of things in terms of this, like, you know, you get some exposure to this is the pattern I'm trying to learn. Then you practice the pattern and then you get feedback on did I do the pattern correctly? Like you can you can summarize a huge amount of learning under that simple rubric. And so I think that um, the mistake people make is that they get stuck on the first part. They just keep doing covering the material. Uh, they don't do practice or they don't do practice and they don't do feedback. So I think if you can get that loop 
figured out. You, you, you have a lot of, um, a lot of the strategies for learning effectively, uh, kind of fit under that, that scheme. Again, I'm going to highly encourage you, dear listener, to go get this book. Uh, it mm-hmm. really, really shaped how how I approached a lot of things. I, in fact, I wish I, I did one of these crazy projects myself uh, many mm-hmm. years ago where I switched on the job from being a marketer uh, at a startup to being a software engineer. And I had to basically become a production engineer without having gone to school for computer science yeah. in you know as fast as humanly possible. And I sort of brute forced my way to a lot of the principles that you then later laid out. And I was like, I remember reading your book going like, Damn, I wish that I had this book when yeah. I when I was trying to do this. So uh, I can say from from my own direct experience that it it does in fact work. So again, I want to encourage people to go get that. Um, one of the things that seems central to a lot of the approaches that I've seen you talk about, whether it's whether it's in ultra learning, and and I want to hear a lot more about the stuff you're exploring now, uh, or or the kind of things you did in uh, you cover in your course, top performer. Mm-hmm. A lot of it seems to be very kind of like project based, right? Of Really, it's, yeah. it's about real world skill development in a lot of ways. I'm trying to think about how to make this like really practical for people, especially as they're career oriented. And mm-hmm. it seems like a lot of it's very project oriented, right? Like you need to come up with a project that's going to push your skills, um, or push you to develop useful, valuable skills. Uh, if we put this in a career context, that is. Yeah. And I guess one of the questions I would ask for you or ask of you is what do people get wrong about project selection? Cause it feels like mm-hmm. your choice of project matters more than we might assume. Yeah, I do think so. First of all, I would say that the project, um, I, I tend to use the word project in a broad sense. So for me, a project is, I just, to me, in my head, I contrast projects versus goals. And so hmm. a goal implies an outcome, like something you're trying to achieve. Whereas mm-hmm. a project is all the actions that you have to take to achieve it. And mm-hmm. so they're they're related, obviously. But I would say that uh, I tend to focus on projects because you know, you can definitely do all the actions and then not achieve the goal that you want. So you can have some sort of exercise schedule, stick to it, and then not mm-hmm. lose the weight. Mm-hmm. And so that you can see the contrast there. And so I tend to be more focused on projects because actions are in your control, mm-hmm. outcomes are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I think goals are important because you often need to modify the project if you're not on track, I do think um, that focus on action is, is important, especially when things are complicated. Um, the bigger and more difficult the goal is, the more it's a sort of a problem solving effort of figuring out what you need to do in order to Mm -hmm. move toward it. And so Mm -hmm. if you're only focused on the goal, it it can kind of, um, it can make it harder to do the work because there's there's just a lot of work involved. So, you know, to, to contrast that as well, like if we're talking about, you know, language learning or, or, or something like that, you might have a goal to be like, well, I want to be fluent in French. Or I want to be able, you know, maybe something a little bit uh, more specific than that. Uh, but a project might be something like, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, listen to this podcast. I'm going to do these studying drills. I'm going to have these conversations with my tutor, blah, blah, blah. So it is some sort of actual structure of like, this is what I'm going to do on a daily basis. And I think that's very important. I think that's very important because a mistake people make is, well, the first mistake people make is they don't have any goals at all. <laughs> they just kind of, ah, I want to get better at this. Like, okay. And then the second problem is that they, they don't have, they don't well specify a project that actually breaks down to like, what are you doing today to move forward on this mm-hmm. particular goal of mm-hmm. yours? And if you don't have that, then I, I think you're, you're kind of stuck. It's very hard to make progress. Um, but in terms of projects, what do people get wrong? Well, I think there's a lot of mistakes people make. One is that they tend to make projects that are too big. Mm. Uh, and I know that sounds a little ironic because I've, I've kind of made my name for doing like fairly big <laughs> projects. But 
I'm very aware that they're much more difficult to do than um, shorter projects. Like doing a month project is much easier on a per month basis than doing mm-hmm. a year long project just because there's less to coordinate, right? You just, it's easier to anticipate, you know, it's easier to make a plan for a month. It's easier to do that. And so I think the average person would be much better off doing a series of one month projects to make progress in an area than to do, you know, a year long project. Mm. Um, I think that uh, most people are not concrete enough in their projects. So they don't actually, um, pick a very kind of specific thing that they're trying to get good at. They're just, they're too vague. They're too nebulous. You know, I want to improve my soft skills. That's meaningless. That's not a project, right? That That's nothing. I want to be able to deliver a really good, you know, 20 minute keynote at this upcoming speech. That's a project. You can actually work on that. You can't work on mm-hmm. your soft skills. Mm-hmm. You can't work on, I want to be a better programmer. That's meaningless. It's, I want to be really good at this library and be able to execute it in environments X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another mistake is that, you know, the things that we actually want are often vague and nebulous and they're sort of idealized fantasies, but those are totally impractical to work on. So you Mm -hmm. have to translate them into something (laughs) concrete. Um, So smaller, more concrete, I think is important. And then I think the other thing too, is that we don't really take seriously how much effort is going to be required to work on Mm. them. Um, There is a persistent strain of optimism bias when we we go into these things and so again this is also something that like you know i've done a lot of things that have been quite ambitious but i think people underrate how much planning and stress testing and like you know if if you're going to do something that is at that level where you're having to put in hours and hours and hours a week you just you have to coordinate your whole life around it right Mm -hmm. and so not everyone who wants to get in shape needs to follow an olympic athlete's training (laughs) regimen but at the same time if you are going to get in shape you need to have some sort of plan of like where is the time going to come from to go to the gym and if you don't even think about that if you're just Mm -hmm. sort of like well yeah i guess i'll go after work but then you forget you got to pick up your kids from daycare and you got to make dinner and you're exhausted after if you're not really thinking through that it's not going to happen so I think uh, there's this great uh, quote. I don't know who it's by. I want to say Clausewitz, but maybe it's not. But it's uh, uh, amateurs think of strategy, uh, experts think of logistics. And so just the <laughs> idea that a lot of what actually matters is your ability to execute. And that's execution is not just willpower. It's a logistics problem. It's a figuring out where is this time going to come from? What is the priority going to be? How am I going to deal with this like particular situation Mm -hmm. that's on the ground? And so I think, um, you know, if you can imagine this as sort of a hierarchy, you've got your vague, Mm -hmm. super, you know, nebulous goal, you're turning it into a concrete project, you're maybe chunking it down to a month, and then you're dealing with the like, how do I actually execute this on a day to day basis? If you can do all of that before you get started, your odds of success go up like tenfold. Oh, that makes total sense. You know, I'm on the road right now traveling and I'm staying with one of my best friends and he and I were, were sitting, you know, chatting over coffee this morning and I was telling him if we were going to have this conversation and I was asking him about his own experiences, learning things and, and what is he working on and projects and so forth. And he brought up this exact thing. So, you know, for context there, he's, he's a, um, he's married. He has two young kids. He has a very full time job, but he's yeah. also a super curious guy. And so it, it came to exactly the, the two things you're, that it sounds like you're pointing to, right? Of, of number one, there's just the kind of, uh, let's just say the emotional challenge of maintaining motivation over, over a longer period of time, especially when mm-hmm. you're talking about like 
fragmented attention, right? Like he, he can kind of carve out like, let's say th- he can reliably carve out like a 30 to 60 minute block um, and, yeah. and kind of chip away at the, a project that way. But then there's also the, the logistical challenge of coordinating that time and then figuring out, well, what do I do when, you know, he's a, he's an infant and it's like he's, yeah. he's prone to interruption at any, any point in time. And he's going to have to stop what yeah. he's doing and go take care of his, his baby. Yeah. So how, how do you, how do you, how do people deal with that? Like, what do you do in a situation like that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's different strategies. The first thing is just to be to be completely obvious about it is that some people have busier schedules than others and will have less time. That's true. I can say this because you know, 33 year old Scott has a lot less time than 23 year old Scott, and that makes a difference in the kinds of projects I can pursue. Yeah, this is like this is just an obvious truth. So I, I, I sometimes I don't even say it, but then I'll get people who will like throw it back at me, like like it's not super obvious that mm-hmm. you know if you have three <laughs> kids and you have a full time job and you're caretaking your elderly parent and you have to work 70 hours a week, yeah, yeah, no, you're not going to be able to like do some 40 hour week project. Like that doesn't make any sense. But I think there are some things that you can think about. So one of them is, first of all, ask yourself how much discretionary time are you spending on things? Because I think for a lot of people, oh, I have no time. But then if you actually add it up, you know, how much time are you actually on uh, social media? How much time are you playing video games? How much time are you watching Netflix? This isn't to say that those things are bad. It is just to say that they're discretionary. And so Mm -hmm. if you are spending a lot of time doing them, uh, there is time. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a question of priorities. So you don't have to prioritize learning. I'm not, I'm not going to be that person who says you have to like stop watching, you know, succession or whatever your favorite show I'm is. Telling, drive to survive, but, man. The, the, the yeah. formula one, it's so good. If you haven't seen it just as a quick interjection, it's amazing. There you go. <laughs> but I mean, but I mean, I think that's something that's important. So for me, one of the big shifts for me when I became a parent is that like, I'm not on social media anymore. And yeah, I did enjoy it. And when I didn't have kids and I had more free time, it was always kind of like, well, yeah, but you're not going to be like, you know, working all the time. I'll go on Reddit a little bit. I'll, you know, watch some random YouTube videos, uh, be on Twitter and hear people's uh, angry comments about various (laughs) things. I don't have time for that anymore. And it's, it's just because I've made a decision in my life that like, well, yeah, but if now it's either this or, you know, reading these books or or doing these, these things Mm -hmm. that are important to me. And so I think that's important. I think it's also important to ask how you can integrate what you want to learn with things that have a lot of meaning in your life already. I think part of the issue as well is that people often don't want to admit that something that they're interested in is completely orthogonal to their life commitments. Mm. And so I never have time to do this. Well, yeah, because you're, you know, it doesn't overlap with anything. And Mm -hmm. so it really does have to just take out of time from things that are priorities. So one example is like, the more you can make your learning project overlap with your actual job, the more you're going to learn, right? Like if Mm -hmm. you're, if you're sort of, okay, well, I'm going to take on a new role and work, or I'm going to take on some new project. And as part of that, I have to learn these new things. Then yeah, then you can spend a lot of time doing Mm it. Whereas if it's, you know, I'm going to work this job and then on the side do something that's totally unrelated to, you know, maybe make some career transition later. Uh, it's going to be harder to do that, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have to find time to do your job and also do this other thing. Not to say that people can't do it, but it's harder to do, obviously. Sure. Um, similarly, I think, you know, uh, if you can find areas where, okay, well, I'm doing this project, but it also overlaps with like a social outlet or it overlaps with something I can do with my kids or it overlaps with physical fitness, then you can also get some of that um, as well. So, so I think there are ways that you can make these things work, but I think it's also very important to just 
you know, take a realistic stock of where your time's going. So, you know, what do you actually have capacity for is an important question. What are the actual places you're spending your time? Um, you know, could those be modified? And then how can you overlap things so that, mm. you know, if you are, you know, like I'll give an example for me. Like I, I had to cut back on a lot of hobbies. I had really sprawling interests in hobbies before I had kids. Mm-hmm. But one of the ones that I kept was skiing and I kept it also because it was a physical activity and mm-hmm. it was also a social outlet. I could go with um, some friends. Whereas, you know, doing ho- at home programming projects was none of those. And so, <laughs> you know, that, that way it's like a little bit, well now, but now I'm not hanging out with my friends. I'm not able to do this. So the more you can kind of like find these things that you can have synergies for, I think is important. A lot of the big projects that I work on now are ones that I explicitly try to overlap with with my work. This is something that I can do that'll uh, help me uh, professionally. Um, you know, help me write a book or help me write an essay or something. So, so th- this is a big part of it. I think is is trying to find ways that you can get something you're interested in, something that you want to improve on, and and make it overlap with with other areas of your life. Yeah, no, that makes total sense to me. And uh, just from the realism side, I feel like it's very refreshing because it's so. I feel like it's it can be so frustrating for people. You know, talking to one of my best friends or talking yeah. to my brother, both of whom have two little kids um you know there there is i feel like they're going to be uh comforted to hear that right because it's sometimes you can read things or listen to things and you get this impression that like hey if you can't throw 20 hours a week at this like don't bother and it's like i i just don't think that's true yeah. i think you just have to be much more um you have to be more thoughtful about it yeah i mean there are some projects that you probably need to throw 20 hours a week on it or don't bother but those are probably in the minority and i think there's also a lot of things where you know time and motivation interact, right? Mm -hmm. Because I feel like a lot of people who are in this situation, yes, you have less time, but you have even less energy. And so this is where you get into these situations where you're like, yeah, you know, I don't have any time for that, but you end up, you know, watching binge watching some show in some week for some reason, like you Mm -hmm. managed to do that. And I think it's just because um, when you are busy, when you are doing a lot of things, you are more tired. And so it's just this uphill battle often to do the things that are important, um, uh, that you want to make progress on. And so often it's a, it's a motivational problem of like, how do you make it so that you can frictionlessly engage in this pursuit, um, as opposed to a, you know, oh, I literally like, there's no time left. Um, you know, I, I, I find it very interesting that, uh, when people are really interested in something and find it kind of enjoyable and mm-hmm. and, and like it's, it has a le- relative amount of ease, you know, even really busy people somehow manage to do a lot of these things. So, <laughs> so I think that's that's a question as well for you is how you know if it is something that's totally discretionary, how can you how can you make it an activity where you can you can have that kind of input. Yeah, for, yeah, no, it's a great example. For for me, one of those was dancing, right? I that became a, a hobby for me was Latin dance, like salsa, for example. And uh, even though I it sort of went away for quite a while during during the depth of the pandemic, uh, you know, it's kind of coming back now. And and it was one of those where similar to what you're saying about skiing, it was like, oh, this is like a, a, a triple threat for me, right? It's like, yeah. it's fun. It's also social. It's also good exercise. And so it was like, oh, yeah, like, I'm still gonna I'm still interested in that. And it's it gives me it checks like four boxes at once. So it's like, oh, yeah, that's yeah. A, actually a really high ROI one relative to, you know, a lot of other things I could do with, with the, with the time I do have. You know, and another thing I think is important to state is that, uh, there's often a lot of like guilt mm. as a motivator of mm-hmm. like, Oh, I really should be doing X. Mm. Right. And, uh, I, I think that's, a 
that guilt as a motivator is, I think, really bad in a lot of cases because it doesn't work very well. You know, <laughs> I think <laughs> yeah. that the, oh, I really should be doing this very rarely makes you do it. Um, like, I need to do this. I have to do this as an, an emergency, maybe, but the kind of mild, yeah, I should probably be doing this more. It doesn't really work as a motivator. And it, it kind of distorts your your goals and, and how you pick things, too, because it... Um, I think it comes from a place of thinking that there shouldn't be any trade-offs or priorities. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think it's totally acceptable to be, to, to say to yourself right now, you know what? Yeah, this is interesting to me, but this is just not the time in my life to do that right mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I, I think that's one of the things for me, especially, I feel like it's even stronger because I've done some of these projects or challenges and people kind of like, especially if they've just read it, they're kind of like straight line extrapolating. Oh, well, you're like continuing to do that exactly as you were when you were doing it before. And it's like, well, no, of course not, you know? Um, and, and I, so I vary. I so like, so there'll be times where I, I, you know, get back into doing something and I'm very intense about it. And then mm-hmm. I, I won't be doing it for a while. And I think there's sometimes some kind of guilt that people have about that. Like, mm-hmm. oh, well, you know, you shouldn't, should never have like stopped doing it or, mm-hmm. or this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, that's, that's life. You know, you always have to be making choices about what's important, which projects you're going to focus on, um, et cetera. And so I think, uh, being comfortable, being confident and saying, okay, I'm going to do these three things right now and, you know, make time for them and everything else. I'm just going to, you know, ah, just put it on hold. Maybe I'll, I'll do it again later. It's totally fine. Yeah. It, it reminds me of, uh, I mean, what it, what it sounds like you're really saying, what I hear in that is this idea of embracing limits, right? As opposed to fighting them. And, and it kind of brings up two thoughts that I wanted to just offer up here. One is yeah. a trick that's, I don't know who taught me this, but I found it personally really helpful with like the sort of the guilt tripping and the shoulds is I just started swapping out could for should. And it's like such a little thing, but instead of saying like, oh, I really should do that, I could be like, oh, I could do that. And it suddenly yeah. like, it, it, I don't know, it, it just took away the guilt and it, it like kind of made things have more, uh, I don't know, just felt lighter in, in a way that I found helpful. So that's something people can try. But then in, in terms of the idea of, of embracing limits, um, have you by any chance read the book 4,000 Weeks? I haven't, but I, I know roughly the, it's uh, Oliver, uh, What's his name? Burke? Burke? Uh, I'm blanking on it I'm right something now. Something with a B. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oliver no, something. Yeah, but it's it's fantastic. Yeah, it, it, yeah it, it's highly recommended if you if you haven't read it yet. Um, but it, you know, he kind of one of the things I love that that he does is is similar to like the tone that I feel like we're exploring in this conversation. He kind of he just kind of calls out like some of the underlying false premises of so many of these like the you know the the productivity systems like the the 43 folders yeah. joke and all that. It's like yeah, like guess what that time is limited that's it it just yeah. is and you know making making peace with that and and making choices with that truth in mind instead of just trying to squeeze in more and more and more and more and more i don't know it's freeing it away well and and i think you know there there's all sorts of views on this but i, I definitely feel like um the idea of focus has been very central to my own mm-hmm productivity system and belief system and in some ways you know i'm 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 good friends with james clear he wrote the forward for my book and he he talks about atomic habits but uh, i know that some people have um read in james this idea that like you should be doing just like a little bit of everything that you're interested in all the time Hmm. um and uh and so there's been kind of like 
I'll call it like kind of like a contrastive approach of the sort of like focus people of like, you know, one project at a time and then you move to a different project versus the like you're doing like 40 things mm. in parallel. And I've been very much on the doing one project at a time. Um, and so where I kind of maybe bump into some of those people who are very much persuaded by the having, you know, habits are good. Don't get me wrong. So I'm not I'm not against habits as a tool, but I am against maybe a misinterpretation that. Um, that it's somehow possible to make achievements just dripping things out 15 minutes a week for like 30 different things. Mm. You know, uh, I think, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of important things that we want to do have some internal complexity to them so that you need to have like overhead in managing them. Like if you're writing a book, it's not just sit down and write 500 words a day. That's not how you write a book. Mm. Like, I, I don't know why people think that that's the, like the typing <laughs> words is the hard part of writing a book. Um, no, it's you have to do research. You have to get ideas. You have to like be talking to people like there's this incredible tangled mess of mm -hmm. work that has to happen and you need to be managing it. Now, can you also write a book and, you know, become an Olympic gold medalist and, you know, learn six <laughs> languages, do this kind of thing at the same time? Like. If you can, good for you, but like I can't. And so I think, um, I think this idea of focus is, is somewhat underrated. Now, I think you can go in the opposite direction and just sort of, um, like, you know, I, I don't want to suggest that your life should be so specialized and, and narrow that you only have ever done one thing in your entire life. But at the same time, I think that, you know, it, it's totally fine to say to yourself, you know what, right now, my priority is my family mm -hmm. and I'm just not going to hang out with my friends as much. Like it's kind of like sacrilege, like, or, you know what? Yeah. I'm just going to work out a couple times a week, but I'm not going to be like, you know, winning any, uh, any races right now. I, I think it's kind of hard for people to say that to themselves. Mm. They're just like this thing right now is just not a priority mm -hmm. and I'm going to just do it either not at all or just at some kind of like very minimal level. And I, I think it's hard for people to, to say that right now. And I think that there's often this kind of, um, at like going to the guilt idea, this idea that we need to like just kind of be checking off every mm. single box. Yeah. And I think if you look at really successful people, they have lots of unchecked boxes. Mm. Like I know a lot of these people who write these books and, and yeah. they're kind of, you know, they have this sort of um, highly polished public image and they're often like really good at some things, but then in other areas of their life, it, you know, it's just like, okay, yeah, but they've got major problems over here. <laughs> and I think, Accepting that as part of the human condition, I think is important. Accepting that like, okay, you know, there's going to be some things that maybe I am, I care about and I'm going to focus in. There's going to be some things that mm -hmm. I just like keep at a, you know, just keeping it humming level. And then there's going to be some things that like, yeah, I just don't do that. Yeah. I just don't do that. And I think that's a hard, it's a hard thing to wire in because I think we have this sort of cultural bias that like, well, if you're a success in life, then, um, then everything is good, you know, and you, you haven't, you haven't dropped. Yeah. You just crush everything at the same time. It's all easy. Yeah, totally. Now I'm so glad you spoke to that. Um, so, you know, looking at that from like a prioritization, right? There's just this level of prioritization based on where you are in your life, what you care about, the time you have that, that all makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. One thing I was wanted to ask you about is, you know, for whatever amount of time you do have, and let's say that, that someone has a, a good chunk of time, they really can throw like 10, 20 hours a week at something, which yeah. is awesome. To what extent do you think you can learn multiple things at once? Like, for example, I've heard of people wanting to learn like two languages at once or have like two or three big projects at once in different, you know, like maybe a language and then a physical skill and yeah. uh, a topic. How, how do you think about that? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I have this kind of uh, philosophy that I advocate on the blog, what I call single projecting, where you just like have one project at a time. Um, it, it, it tends to be like one of those things where it's a, as a kind of rule of thumb, it works pretty well. But if you actually like in specified in detail, it becomes hard because then there's this real boundary of like, well, what's the project? And, mm-hmm. you know, does this mean I'm like, you know, not cooking food or not? The way I would put it is that I think that people overestimate how much overhead capacity they have. So the way I think of it is that there's the kind of literal time you're spending. And then there's this sort of on top of that, some amount of Hmm. self-control, self-regulation management Hmm. of the effort. Mm -hmm. And for things that are true, genuine habits, Mm -hmm. this overhead is almost zero. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. it's just a question of how much time you have. Mm -hmm. So for things like, well, I wake up in the morning and let's say I make coffee every day, right? Like that's one of the things I do. That's not, that's not even something I think about. It's just something I do, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas a lot of things when people are talking about habits, uh, they're talking about something that they do regularly, but it's, it's rarely, it's usually something that has some overhead. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just less, right? Mm -hmm. So like, oh, I go to the gym every day might be one of those things that, it would definitely, like, you know, unless you have really been doing it every single day for, you know, four years, it's usually the case that not going to the gym is easier <laughs> than going to the gym, even so. But it maybe it's a lot less effort than it was when you started going to the gym. And so I think this idea of there being a limited attentional mm. overhead that you can allocate to projects is very important mm-hmm. because we tend to just sort of say, oh, okay, well, I got, you know, this X hours in the day. I'll just divide it up that way. But if you, if those are each pursuing different pursuits that have conflicting goals that require separate kind of problem solving, you know, mental overhead kind of structures, the more you break it down, the, the, the less capacity you have to overcome difficulties in those areas. And so this is why I tend this single projecting approach where, you know, you pick out one main difficulty, one main thing that you're going to try to work on in your life for a chunk of time. And then you do another one. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, like, let's say the goal was to start getting in shape. Well, maybe a lot of that is setting up. The project is a lot of like getting set up with exercise Mm -hmm. habits, getting set Mm -hmm. up with those things. And then maybe you're shifting so that, okay, well, the exercise habits a little bit in the background. I'm not trying to hit any new fitness records. I'm just, Mm -hmm. yeah, I just show up there and I do my workout and and that's about it while I'm focusing on something else. So where I think learning comes into play is that I feel like learning projects are are much more likely to have this high overhead requirement. Mm. Um, and so, you know, compared to the, like, fitness, for instance, is something where because your body has physical limitations, like you can't work out eight hours a day, they tend to be, you know, more the kind of thing, well, yeah, well, you just need to be consistent at doing a relatively simple plan over a long period of time. Mm. Uh, learning can be like that. I think... Um, you know, there's definitely areas of learning where I've gotten into just habits for them. So like language learning, mm-hmm. for instance, you can definitely get pretty far with just like, okay, well, I just, you know, listen to this podcast once a day, or I, you know, have a one hour tutoring session or something. I mean, it's still, you still have to allocate the time, but mm-hmm. it's a fairly consistent schedule. But I mean, a lot of other skills, they're not like that at all. Like they're, mm-hmm. they have a lot of overhead. It's a lot of like, okay, well, I figured out this, but I haven't figured out this and I have to do this. And so, um, I tend to be much more in favor of, of projects for that approach. And I think that, um, there, there can be some weaknesses from a project approach. Like if you are too intense about it, 
uh, one of these things is related to um, spacing. So the idea that, you know, when you cram something together, you don't learn as effectively per mm-hmm. unit time mm-hmm. as, as if you spread it out. So there can be some disadvantages there, but I think it, it all depends on just this, this overhead cost of like uh, how much attention you need to manage it. So learning multiple languages at once, I would say it's probably harder than learning one language at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that's something, you know, you have to just kind of make that decision on your, ba- on your own basis. If like, if I wasn't working a job or if I was just, you know, taking a year off, then yeah, maybe I could do two or three projects yeah. at once. Whereas if it's like, okay, I've got literally 45 minutes discretionary every day and you want to learn three languages at once. That's just, to me, it's just like, why, why, you know, wouldn't it be better to just be able to do one of them? You know what I mean? So totally, I, it, it, it does vary from person to person. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. The, um, the language one in particular, I think might be challenging because it, when you're, when you're learning a language, it, it, I feel like if you were learning two languages at once, you, you almost like cro- might get your wires crossed where you like start wiring the wrong stimuli to the wrong things. And it could just be a little more confusing in that sense. The language thing, there is a very important benefit of what we could call interleave practice, where if you, let's say you want to be good at two, three languages, it's very important to have practice sessions where you alternate them in relative quick succession because of the issue you're talking about. When you get really good at one language, it's let's say let's say just just imagine the way you can visualize this is that like each English word let's say there's just like a uh, like a wire that goes from the English word to the word in the target language obviously mm-hmm. languages are more complicated than this but just as a simplification and the idea is that uh, when you're in Spanish mode you want the wire to go from the English word to the Spanish word mm-hmm. and when you're in French mode you want it to go from uh, English word to the French word. And there's two ways that you can do this. One way is that if you just start speaking Spanish all the time, you just increase the strength of all the wires that go from English to Spanish. But that means that when you go back to French, you're constantly having this interference problem mm-hmm. where the Spanish wires are going over there. So interleave practice is where, okay, speak in Spanish, speak in French, speak in Spanish, speak in French. And the idea is that you get better at discriminating so that the, the like words that are um, because they're closer in time, you're getting better at switching. Mm-hmm. Okay, no, but when I'm in French mode, I only activate these words. When I'm in Spanish mode, I only activate those words. Now, what does that mean as a practical point of view? Well, I think that it's still probably beneficial in the early phases of a language to do one at a time, particularly because conversations are so difficult mm-hmm. that any extra difficulty just really makes it worse. But I think in the long term, if you're trying to maintain multiple languages, you definitely want to do this back-to-back practice. So yeah. when I was um, doing these languages... After I came back from the trip, I would often do that. I'd have like maybe three or four tutoring sessions in a row where it'd be like French, Spanish, you know, Portuguese, Mandarin or something. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, that's very helpful because it is definitely the case that when you learn a new language, it can kind of through this interference effect suppress the other languages. And, um, it's not because you've forgotten the other languages, just because you've kind of, um, you've sort of biased the system too far so that it recalls Spanish, even when you want to recall French and and vice versa. So there is a sense in which that's important. It tends to be like a more of a language thing because um, there's not a lot of situations where the same cue, you want to have different prompts in Mm -hmm. in different situations. I mean, I guess, I guess I could imagine it if you're practicing very similar skills, like if you're trying to learn, you know, salsa and also tango or something, and they're like very similar and you don't want to like get the footwork 
for the wrong one. I, I can imagine that being a, a potential issue where you'd want to do this interleave practice. But I mean, if we're talking about salsa and computer programming, the the interference is just not an issue. So that's no longer a problem. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me because yeah, this this mapping from stimulus to response where is very unique in language, right? Like languages are one of the few things where it's like, okay, I, I look at a dog. I don't want to, you know, and I also really like the approach. One, one language learning book I'm a huge fan of is uh, Fluent Forever by Gabriel Weiner. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And one of the key things that he really talks about is, is actually don't translate, right? And this idea that you want to just like, you want to see the thing like a dog and you don't want to like mm-hmm. go see a dog, think dog in English and then think perro. You want to like just go see the dog, think perro or whatever your you know target word is. Yeah. And if we take that as true, whether or not you agree with that, uh, you know, it, you're right that there's not many other environments environments where you have the same input and you want a totally different output um like the dance thing is interesting i've had that experience a little bit of like learning salsa and bachata and i've had that problem a little bit but i have found that for the most part the musical input is different enough that it it just pushes my body in the right direction basically um yeah yeah but i still struggle a little bit to like maintain both of those and so that interleaving practice idea is very interesting I do think, okay, so I'll make a note on interleaving practice because this is really important. This is a little technical, but the idea of a cue and then a response um, as a fundamental building block of learning, I think has a lot of merits to it. I mean, there's a little bit more than that. It, it, it gets complicated, but the idea that what you're doing when you learn things is often kind of a, in this situation, I need to bring up this knowledge and you're strengthening a particular retrieval association um, has a lot of utility. It goes to this retrieval practice idea that we were talking about before. And so one of the obvious difficulties is if you have interference, where if you have the same cue or almost the same cue and you want different responses, this creates issues. Now, the thing here is that the more different the cues are, the less this is an issue. Mm-hmm. So for language learning, it's an issue because you're having, it doesn't have to be an English sentence. It can just be some kind of meaning that you intend. Uh, so I, I want to make that clear. It's not the case that when you're speaking language, you're, you're maybe in the beginning you do explicitly translate, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, often when you're speaking, you're just speaking. But the idea is that you have some intention to say something that has a certain meaning mm-hmm. and Basically, the only difference is that, ah, you have this like little extra thing that says, I'm speaking French, right? But the, yeah. but the meaning is the same. And so disambiguating that can be hard. Um, interleaving practice is this idea that if you uh, alternate which things you're doing so that, okay, French, Spanish, French, Spanish, French, Spanish, you get better at disambiguating them. Part of this is just because... Uh, it spreads it out and it makes it harder to retrieve. So it's related to this retrieval practice. Uh, part of it is just because you get better at discriminating it. So when you have to say the same word in French and in Spanish, kind of like in close proximity, um, the contrast between those two words becomes more evident. So it's sort of like, oh yeah, this is the one in Spanish. This is the one in French. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have them mm-hmm. separated over months, it may not be obvious uh, which one was which mm-hmm. just because they get kind of muddled. So, uh, people who are interested in this, I have an essay that's, uh, it's, it's not yet published as a, as the moment I'm saying this, but by the time you're listening to this, it will be published, uh, uh, called Desirable Difficulties. Mm. And so this reviews some of the memory research on this idea. But one thing I think is important is that people mix up what this interleaving practice does, because I've heard people say things that like, oh, well, interleaving practice means I should do six different things at once and just separate it out. Mm. So I should do 15 minutes of Spanish and then 15 minutes of physics and then 15 minutes of whatever. And, um, you know, I don't think that that's what the research says at all, hmm. right? Because the issue is that is that you want to vary the 
um, specific problem types you're doing within a subject because those are the ones you're going to confuse, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're mm-hmm. learning physics, you're going to confuse unit one problems from unit two problems. You're not going to confuse physics problems from your grammar practice in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the the benefit of this interleaving practice is is often when the the Q response relationship is quite similar mm-hmm. that you need to disambiguate it. That makes a lot so of sense. So this is also why if you're if you're doing like if you're learning a language, for instance, it's very important. Um, to note things that you confuse, that you mix up all the time, put them next to each other and like, what's the difference? Um, so I, in that essay, I have a good example of like, there's uh, two Chinese characters, E and G, and they're very common and they look almost identical. Mm. And so if you don't learn them next to each other and say, this is the thing to pay attention to that says one is one, it's very easy for you to learn them and then keep mixing them up and keep mixing them up because of this issue. So this, uh, this is very important for like you know, untangling things and language learning. If you learn multiple, like I've done, this is a constant challenge. I would say the disentangling interference effects is probably a bigger amount of work in maintaining fluency in multiple languages than actually just learning the words. But it's, you know, and and it's something that can definitely happen that you spend three months or a year learning French and you spend three months or a year learning Spanish the Spanish then seems to overwrite the French. It's not that it's overwritten the French. It's just because you've temporarily biased all the weights from Mm -hmm. cute response to Spanish and you're fighting that as you speak. But if you go back and forth, it'll untangle Mm. over time. Mm. So I think that is something that's helpful if you're learning two skills that are quite similar and you want to make sure you don't confuse them. Uh, But yeah, languages, maybe some dancing. I could see that maybe, maybe if you were doing certain, I I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to find good examples where this is the case, but um, solving math problems would be another one where you like want to, but it's usually within the particular subject. So it's like algebra problems. You want to vary the types of algebra problems you do in the same studying session so that you know, ah, this is the one where I use the quadratic formula and this is the one where I do, you know, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's very important, but you don't usually mix up the quadratic formula with like dog equals perro <laughs> or something like that, you know, like it's yeah. just, they don't get confused. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So I got two more things I want to, I want to cover and then we'll kind of start to close out here. Um, one of them is I was, I'm wondering how does this stuff change if it changes when we shift from a, I may use the wrong word here, so please, please correct me if I do like from more of a cognitive thing to a procedural physical skill. So for example, um, let me, right. let me make that concrete. So if we take like languages versus dancing, right? Two things that I, I've enjoyed exploring. So languages, I know when we think about retrieval, for example, right? Let's assume that we, we learn the skill well the first time, like we learn how we learn how to say the word right. And we learn how to do the dance move, right? For example. And then, but we think about like retrieving it at the right time. Um, this is where something like a space repetition system can be incredibly helpful for, for language, right? To sort of man- yeah. manage those um, retrieval curves and the forgetting curves. Does that same idea translate to, to like a physical procedural skill like dancing? Because I found it seems yeah. somehow different, but I can't, I'm not sure how. Yeah, I mean, my my experience with um, the research underlying physical skills is a lot spottier. Um, my understanding of it is that there there is a lot of overlap. Um, you can uh, one way of like this is how I'm breaking it apart, but you could even like think in terms of your brain systems. You could think of like a perceptual skill, a motor skill, and a cognitive skill. And the idea being like a perceptual skill would be you know uh, like making a discrimination that's just sort of a visual pattern. Mm. Uh, a motor skill would be like moving your arm or, or 
or doing some kind of physical movement. Mm-hmm. And then a cognitive skill is usually manipulating something in your head or making a decision based on, on what you're, what you're seeing. And I would say that most skills actually involve all three to mm-hmm. some extent. So like, uh, speaking a language has a perceptual skill of, for instance, if you're learning Mandarin, being able to hear the tones mm-hmm. is a perceptual skill. Totally. It's not something that like, oh yeah, well this is clearly first tone. You actually have to like train yourself to listen to it. Um, and uh, similarly, there is a motor skill in learning a language in producing the language. So like moving your tongue and pronouncing things in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So I think there is, um, there's aspects to this to, to most skills. One of the key things for motor skills and for perceptual skills is to get a lot of practice with feedback. Um, I think often the difficulty of learning these these skills is that kind of get some instruction in the sort of basic shape of the idea, but you need a lot of practice. Uh, practice to sort of fine tune the so in motor skills they often talk about like a motor program which mm. would be sort of like the kind of broad movement that you're doing and then there's all these parameters which are sort of like how much you move this or how fast you do this mm-hmm. and this kind of thing mm-hmm. and so there's some there's some arguments that uh you know there is a process of fine tuning that parameter and so you want to be able to get the basic shape so the sort of the kind of the mental image of this is how it's supposed to be done and then you want to be getting lots of practice with very close feedback to fine-tune it so there's different ways that you can look at that one is um how can you actually get the correct shape of the of the sort of motor action so for pronunciation one of the things people who have bad accents in other language is they don't realize where you're actually putting your tongue Mm in that language yeah. to produce the thing. So I, I had a friend um, of that when we were traveling and he was talking about how the T in Spanish is different from the T in English. Mm. And I kind of was doing it, but I didn't really, well, I wasn't very conscious of it, mm. but he was like, Oh, I, it's obvious to me because those are two different letters in Hindi. His ah. language. So in Spanish, the T is one letter and in English. So, but Hindi has both of those. Ah. And so I was like, Oh really? Like, because to me, they're just T. They're just like a slightly different way of saying T. Yeah, yeah. So that's an example of where if you looked at a little diagram where they're showing your tongue and where it's hitting, like, um, I think, uh, I, I'm, I don't know the linguistic terms that well, but like the T in English has kind of hits uh, the top and then the T in Spanish hits more on the teeth. An actual linguist will laugh at my inability <laughs> to use the correct terms there, but um, but but you can you could look at a little chart. So when I was learning Mandarin, uh, there was a website that had a little like showed you. Oh, when you make the sound, which is a weird sound in English, this is how you move your tongue. And the difference between the two sh sounds, like uh, xi and shi, also based on the tongue position, yeah. you can learn that, and then you can just practice it. And uh, the other thing is that you want to be able to get good feedback. So this is another area where you can probably improve more rapidly if you're able to get better feedback about things. So uh, being able to see videotapes of yourself doing a particular skill, having someone watch you while you're performing it. Um, these are all things that, you know, they do in athletics a lot where they'll have like high speed cameras watching some athlete and being like, mm-hmm. you know, you move your hand a little bit too late when you're doing this. Mm-hmm. That's why it's important because it's hard for you to manage the skill as well as reflect on mm-hmm. the skill. And so these are sort of ways that you can work on, on motor and, and perceptual skills. But I think the fundamental principles are quite similar. And I think that, you know, there are certainly some areas where the motor or perceptual components are quite minimal, but for a lot of real world skills, they even things that don't seem like motor skills have quite a bit of motoric components to them. Like, as I said, like languages, um, 
pronunciations all more. In a language example, would, would, a, would the cognitive skill be like producing the right word for what you intend? Is that, would that be the cognitive component of that? Well, now it gets kind of complicated because I think um, there's, yeah, I, I don't know whether I have a clean answer for where they separate mm-hmm. because it seems like there's probably some aspect, um, at least when you're learning a language um, that you learn kind of, yeah, I, I don't know whether, I think they blur into each other. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not clear to me where it would be, okay, well, this is the mm-hmm. perceptual act of perceiving phonemes versus this is the cognitive act mm-hmm. of retrieving a word. My guess is that they would blur into each other so that, you know, um, words that are pronounced more cleanly hit, you know, it's not like you get some degraded input and then you immediately, you know, fit it to some pattern. And then it's, I I don't think that they necessarily happen like that, but I I haven't read enough of the research to be able to, to be, this is just me speculating. I, I'm sure there's someone who's done some research that's, uh, that sort of fit it together. But I do think like the cognitive component I think is important because um, it underlies a lot of skills and it underlies, I think a lot of the things that we find particularly difficult about learning skills. A lot of people think that like being a good painter is mostly, you know, a perceptual skill or a motor skill, like a perceptual skill, like being able to see what the painting is Mm, or or a motor skill of like being able to move the brush. And my personal opinion is that that's totally false, Mm. is that painting is an entirely cognitive skill. It's an entirely like the the average painter cannot see discrimination so much better than you can. Mm. And they cannot move their hand in such a what they're doing is that they have some sort of cognitive strategy for producing the painting. <laughs> that allows them to at the particular moment be like ah yeah well this needs to be like this because it is to match with this like it's it's like solving i don't want to say it's like solving a math problem because obviously they're, they're they're quite different in a lot of ways but um the the components of like recall and integration and doing practice to make certain aspects of it fluent um th- these are these are even in a, a skill that seems as far away from cognitive as possible, I think there's a there's a huge component there. So I tend to be in favor of the view that a lot of learning, um, even things that seem like they're just purely intuitive or purely like muscle memory, have quite a quite a considerable cognitive component. You know, I think even a lot of sports are are highly cognitive. Mm-hmm. Like there are a lot about, you know, making decisions about like, mm-hmm. you know, do I do a free throw here? I do I do a layup or this like yeah, you gotta execute the motor program, but there are lots of split mm-hmm. second decisions where you're making choices. You know, when I do a golf swing, it's like, okay, well I want to aim over here. Like that's a cognitive decision. It's not just a, you know, how how you um swing the club through. Yeah, no, I think this stuff is like kind of endlessly like you can, you know, these things become endlessly fascinating because there's endless depth you can go to in breaking down any skill from like it's high level practice yeah. to it's really low level practice. And you're like, okay, I'm going to practice this very specific perceptual skill of, you know, the way I read a green, if I'm putting in golf or, you know, the way I make a split second decision in this situation, whatever. Um, I think it's super interesting. So one of the, but like reading a green is a lot of cognitive skill. I think that's what I'm, I would say as well. Like, you know, um, one of the things I learned from, from doing drawing and stuff mm. is that a lot of what you're doing is making, um, judgments so you're making a judgment of like well this is bigger than this or this Mm -hmm. forms this angle with this Mm -hmm. so those are not real those are cognitive skills they're not perceptual Mm -hmm. skills like a perceptual skill would be kind of like can i see the difference between this line and this Mm -hmm. line like that's my that's my take on it is that people tend to think that that the painter just has this incredible perceptual ability but i think what it is is they have such well automated ways of 
processing that scene to make decisions, mm. they don't even think about them. They're just so obvious to them that, oh, oh, yeah, well, obviously this is like this and it's not like this. Or like when they look at a picture, like, yeah, you screwed this up because this is not this shape or something. But it's not because they're able to see it in a way that you're not. It's because they're able to manipulate what the same information that's coming and hitting their eyes in a way that is more productive yeah. for the actual skill. And I, I think that's probably true of a lot of um, sports and, and, and things like this. That's my opinion. I don't have, I don't have a citation for that. No, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's super interesting because I, yeah, we're way out of the frontier of what I understand as well. And, and it, it's, it, let's just listen to you. It sounds like we could almost, I kind of, I'm enjoying this model where it's almost like this three part of like perceptual is like taking in information from the world. Cognitive is manipulating that information, structuring it, making decisions, judgments. And then, you know, in a motor context, there's like the motor skills of then acting on the cognitive output. Where I think things get really interesting is this, is this is not me being an expert. This is me just parroting something I heard recently. But I was uh, watching. There's a course from MIT on uh, cognitive neuroscience. I think it's called Human Brain. I forget. It has a, a woman who's a professor. I don't remember her name. Mm-hmm. But it's really, really good. And one of the things that they talk about is just how many um, how many specialized areas there are in the brain for doing certain things. And so, um, you know, I. I tend to follow a lot of cognitive psychology, which sort of assumes that there is a sort of fairly general purpose cognitive kind of module mm-hmm. for for doing things, and there probably is. But it also seems to be clear that there is a lot of, um, you know, it may be the case that when you learn a language, for instance, uh, that there are specialized parts of the brain that that handle um, certain aspects of that. And so I don't know for sure how it all comes together, but I mean, I think uh, this is a really like interesting and exciting kind of, uh, kind of field. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, one of the major takeaways that I've had from doing all this research has just been that um, a lot of things that seem really kind of simple on the surface are like you mm-hmm. know, super interesting and detailed questions about like, how do you learn and what's the best way to do things that I don't think, you know, when I got into this like 10 years ago, I, I don't think I had like any clue yeah. of like how much we know and how much complexity there is and how much interesting stuff there is. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating. Yeah, deal. totally. I, I'm right there with you. It's endlessly fascinating to me. So let's, I want to ask you one more thing and then we'll close out here. Um, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier with, with, you know, projects, right. And project selection. Yeah. Um, a lot of the, I know a lot of the folks listening to this are, we covered a lot of super interesting territory, right. Especially on like, <laughs> Oh, I want to do this. Yeah. I want to go learn this cool thing that I've just always wanted to learn. Cause it's going to yeah. be, it's going to make my life better somehow. Um, but you know, mm-hmm. going back to it, a lot of the folks listening to this are, are going to want to apply this in a, in a professional context and, and myself as well. Yeah. And one of the things that I think about there is we, if we think about applying all this to develop one's skills, professional skills and advance your career in some way. I think a lot of it does come down to project selection, like, like selecting the right skills to get better at. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of the ways it's, that's, that's kind of what I'm curious about, right? You could go, of course, and yeah. talk to folks who are whatever at that next step ahead of you or two steps ahead of you in your career. Or are they kind of gone where you want to go? My question is, you know, if, if let's say you do that, you talk to some folks, you get their stories, you understand like where they've been and, and how they got to where they are. It feels like it's, it's actually challenging to figure out which are the skills that are truly going to make the difference and then design a project accordingly. Yeah. How do you think about that? How do you, how do you, in a professional context, how do you figure out right. or how do you advise people to figure out like, okay, here's the thing you really actually need to get good at of the many things you could invest your time in? So one of the things that I, I really stress, and, and I've talked about it um, on, on my blog before, I call it kind of like doing the real thing, but just basically the idea of 
starting with the skill is not always the best approach um, because often it's well often one of the difficulties is is, is kind of hard to describe what it is that you need to be good mm. at and this is one of the things that we found in top performer is that the things that people are actually good at that matter are, are you know they're rarely the kind of thing you could write down in an academic syllabus that can be kind of like oh yeah i'm i'm good at this mm. now there are exceptions i think for technical skills or where someone has like an obvious aptitude at a particular kind of set of tasks or something then it's you know easier to do but i think one of the reasons that i i tend to focus on this project-based approach is that if you focus on well this is the kind of key next accomplishment or, um, you know, thing that wouldn't be on my resume to do that. Then the kind of learning project almost takes care of itself because it, the learning project becomes, well, like, how do I do that? Mm. Or how do I actually execute that at that mm-hmm. level? So for me, for instance, I mean, I could think of it in terms of like when I was before I wrote ultra learning, it was like, well, a key next accomplishment would be like writing a successful book. Mm-hmm. And so the the learning project that comes for that is like, how do you write a successful mm-hmm. book, right? And so it, it's a little different from if I approached it from a skill angle, like I need to be a better writer, right? And then you just do a bunch of random things mm-hmm. that maybe make you a better writer, but maybe make you a better writer in ways that don't really directly contribute to writing a better book mm-hmm. or, or this mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so I think this is really important, I think particularly with these kinds of soft skills in a workplace environment, because often you're dealing with a situation where um, to get ahead, again, there's a bit of a split here, but a very common path is that you have some sort of technical competency that gets you at a certain level. Mm -hmm. And then to move up to get better is like increasingly like nebulous. Mm -hmm. What is it you need to be good Mm -hmm. at? And so it's often more productive in that case to think in terms of like, what are the key accomplishments I'd need to be able to make that move? Mm. So, you know, one thing to do is to just like find the job you want or find the position you want and like talk to them and say like, you know, would I be able to get this position? And if you're not be like, what would I need to demonstrate Mm to be able to get this position Mm -hmm. like what would and that helps you constrain the project because if you know what you need to actually do is you need to like successfully lead a team and deliver on time for a particular objective you know that isn't a skill but it does narrow down what is it that i have to be good Mm -hmm. at and then it's like okay maybe i need to learn some project management or maybe i need to read these books on Mm -hmm. you know productivity or or this kind of thing and so this is a, a bit of a different approach. Um, it's more top down. And I think it's something that I think is particularly relevant when you're in a kind of ill-defined career environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not, the, the opposite approach is what I'll call like a bottom up approach where you're just sort of like, okay, I'm going to just like learn this from the basics mm-hmm. and, and going up. And I think that works particularly well for technical skills. And I think it works particularly well when the skill itself is well-defined. So if you want to learn French, yeah, get a French book, do some French practice, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. you can kind of can't go wrong with that, that approach. Um, whereas if, you know, you're already pretty good at French and you can already speak and you're in the office and it's like not really clear what it is you need to do. And then you talk to someone who's like, well, you know, you're not moving ahead because people don't think that you can, you know, successfully manage these like client relations. Then that sort of scopes mm-hmm. the, I need to be better at French in a very particular context, in a very particular set right, of right, um, right. areas. And it might just be that, okay, well, I just need to generally raise my French level. But it might also be something like, no, 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 I just need to like, you know, have a lot of experience and practice in that particular environment. So this is something that I think is is important is... um 
you know, focusing on often learning projects in the context of what is the kind of key accomplishment? What is the sort of next step? What is the thing that like, this is the thing that needs to be on my resume or Mm -hmm. this is the thing that needs to be, uh, you know, on my track record. And this is true for businesses too. Like it's not even just an employment context. Like often there is a kind of, you know, if I'm going to do this, I need to kind of have this sort of intervening next step um, in doing this. So, you know, for me, there was a period of time where like doing these kinds of projects was one of those next steps because I needed to distinguish myself from, well, I just have a blog where I'm just like some nobody who's just sharing his opinion. I need to do something that is going to, you know, set me apart and establish, okay, these are some things that maybe I know something about Mm -hmm. or I'm kind of good at. And that's one way of doing it. And so that helped conceptualize the project is like, this is a key accomplishment that will kind of take me from A to B. And, um, and and so figuring out what those key accomplishments are is a little bit of a research process itself. And so, you know, I know you're kind of hinting at top performer, the course that I teach with Cal Newport, where we talk a lot about doing the research (laughs) for that. Um, and I think picking those accomplishments are good, but I think that, um, one of the things I've been shifting to more and more is not trying to dissociate learning from just achievements, uh, because very often a, an achievement, actually a, getting some result involves a lot mm-hmm, of learning mm-hmm. and uh, conceptualizing it in terms of an achievement often works better. So conceptualizing it in terms of I need to write a you know best-selling book versus I need to become a better writer yeah. often works better just because the former is just so much more constrained in terms of what you actually have to get good at versus getting better as a writer. You know, it has that vagueness problem, but it also just means that like, there's tons of things that you could like, ah, maybe, maybe that'll help you become a better writer. I don't know. Yeah, no, I love, I, I love that. Thank you so much for clarifying that. And w- so it sounds like you're, if I were to try and summarize that, it sounds like you're saying, you know, look, there, there's a body of things out there that are very well defined, right? And they're, they're well defined. They're well understood. There are good maps, right? We know if you want to become, you know, if you want to learn Python, there's a way to do it. If you want to learn French, there's a way to do yeah. it. If you want to learn algebra, there's a way to do it. But then when you start to get into much more nebulous, ill-defined things, which is frankly where we actually spend most of our time in our careers. Like once you get past those yeah. initial stages of like, okay, I want to become a bestselling author. I want to become a successful entrepreneur, uh, whatever it is, like by defining the goal. And then from there, you can start to like walk mm-hmm. back towards towards the like, all right, that's the goal. And that has this sort of basket of skills. And then you can start to actually apply these things in in more of a top down way. Am I hearing you right? You know, there's another reason too. there's another reason too, because I think one of the things that I've um, also observed is that uh, it's also hard to separate, let's call it the skill from the signal. So the, the skill would be the thing that you're actually good at. The signal would be this, um, from outside appearances, mm. you have this thing on your track record yep. that, you know, says that you're X. And, um, generally in real life, the skills and the signals are just kind of in one package together. Mm-hmm. So maybe you'd be able to disentangle them so that like someone who's really good at this, but you know, can't easily demonstrate it versus someone who has something on their resume, but they don't actually have any real world experience, but they're usually packaged together. And so often what you're doing when you're looking at skills is you're also in conjunction looking at like, well, how would I demonstrate that? Yeah. I have that yeah, skill? Yeah. You know? So it's not enough to be like, I get really good at copywriting. It's like, how do I prove that I'm really good at copywriting? And often in professional investment, uh, the legibility of certain, um, signals is very important. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, this is why college degrees are important in the first place, even though they often teach kind of useless stuff is because you need to demonstrate that you were smart enough to get the information. You know what I mean? So like there, there's exceptions to this, you know, I mean, even like when I'm talking about my MIT challenge and things like that, where I did kind of go in a different direction. But I think 
the the basic idea is that this sort of achievement-centered approach, you kind of get both. You kind of figure out, oh, okay, well, what you need to do to move up here is you need to like prove yourself on some particular project mm-hmm. where you like really over deliver. And then that scopes down. There is a there's a skill component of what do I have to be good at to over deliver on this project? But then there is the actual, I can say that I was on this project and I over delivered as part of the signal. Mm-hmm. And so I think that kind of keeping those both in mind is important because one of the problems with just a pure learning project is that maybe you're not investing in the right signals mm-hmm. to do it. So maybe you are just like, I want to become a better writer. And then, you know, you spend a lot of time doing drills and, and maybe it makes you a better writer. Whereas writing a book is something you can say, oh yeah, I published this book and, you know, it sold X copies. Well, the publisher maybe really cares about the number of copies you sold. Maybe they don't care about how many uh, drills that you did. And so this is true in a lot of professional environments where these skills and um, signals come in these sort of lump packages is that you want to be looking at, okay, I need to be able to accomplish X. And then the skill development is working backwards what do i need to do to accomplish it and i mean that can even be true for like i need a certificate in this particular programming language or or that kind of thing is itself a kind of signal plus uh, skill kind of lumped together and so i think thinking about it in that way is important because i think just purely just i'm just going to get better at this for the sake of getting better at it um it it often doesn't constrain the problem enough. It doesn't constrain it to like, this is what I need to work on because there's just too many choices. Yeah. Yeah. It seems, I, I really appreciate that, um, that, that, uh, way of framing it. And, and it also seems like the, Oh, I just want to get better at that is probably actually has a much more limited purview, right? Like that's the kind of thing where maybe there is no external signal or, or one's inappropriate. Like the one that comes to mind for my, my own life is like meditation. There is, you know, there's no signal yeah. that I'm a good quote unquote good meditator here. I mean, that, at least not that in the way I think about practice, but I think if I think about being um, thinking entrepreneurially or a podcast or writing, whatever, like, yeah, there are signals, right? I can say, yeah, I look, I did a podcast and I have X many episodes and downloads and blah, 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 or I built a product and it did really well measured by X, Y, Z. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think that's, that's important because like we're talking about professional advancement where whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're in a career um, as an employee, uh, you're always like you're always interfacing with other people, right? And so the signal component is, you know, inextricably mm-hmm. tied to, totally. to the work you're doing. Whereas if you're just like you're meditating, I mean, you're not putting that on <laughs> no. your resume, right? Like you, you're meditate for your own well being. So in that case, it doesn't matter quite so much. And similarly, if you're just learning something for your own interest sake, or you just want to be good at something for your own, you know, personal betterment, whatever, then yeah, this doesn't mm-hmm. apply, mm-hmm. Uh, or it's not nearly as important. But I still think in terms of thinking in terms of um, accomplishments is a way of dealing with this nebulosity problem. Yep, it tends to be less of an issue when it's okay, yeah, but I need to be able to know how to program. Okay, well, that's there's lots of books you could buy. You could just kind of follow a course. Whereas, uh, you know, I need to be able to, like, figure out how to advance in this company, talking to people, figuring out what are the key accomplishments, what are the key things that, like, I need to demonstrate that, like, you know, maybe the thing they're worried about is that you don't have good people skills, right? How would I demonstrate that I have good people skills, that I'm actually able to lead a team? And, you know, and sometimes this is this kind of digging is very valuable because it helps you, it helps illustrate what are the actual criteria that people are using for making these selections, mm, yeah. you know, and, and sometimes there's some, you know, uncomfortable truths there, right? Like, I know with uh, publishing, a lot of people would like it to be the case that, you know, publishers pick you because, 
you know, you've got a great idea or because you're, you know, a good writer, whereas often it's sort of like, no, 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 they want to demonstrate that you have reach so that you can sell books. (laughs) You know, they don't care whether you're that great a writer. And but it changes the metric. It's like, oh, no, I need to have a popular blog or I need to have like bylines at like important publications or something. Totally different project than just, you know, I need mm-hmm. to like this pure idea, my typewriter and put in my dress. <laughs> yeah, no, no. So I, I think that's why it's important to do that research is because you need to, you know, be figuring out, oh, okay, these are the actual key accomplishments that are going to move me forward in this area. Yeah, no, super appreciate that. Thank you so much for addressing that. So let's go ahead and close out here. I'm going to ask you a couple rapid fire questions. They're short questions. You can, your question can be, or your answer can be as long as you find interesting. So, um, and they're just fun things I ask everybody. So first one I like to ask is, you know, we've covered, you're clearly someone who is deeply curious and has explored a lot of different domains of life. And I'm curious, um, as you've done that exploration and as you do it now, is there like a quote or a saying or an idea or even a principle that you return to often that just helps you navigate that? And if so, what what is that and what does it do for you? Oh, man. Uh, you know what? I'm going to have to pass. I can't think of no any problem. right now. I think I, I, I love like good quotes uh, when I can find them, but... Um, I feel like I feel like I'm the way my mind works is that they're not retrievable in the uh, from the prompt. Yeah, yeah. Or mental. I find mental models are all also helpful here, and I'll just like give one as an example in case it jogs something for you. Um, One that I find really helpful there is uh, this idea of and and there's a a whole bunch of books and stuff about this, like called polarity management, which is this idea that like there's problems and problems can be solved, right? Like in a, in some sort of definitive sense. And then there's these ideas of like a polarity or like a paradox where it's like this built in tension and it can't really be solved. It can only be managed. Well, it, like it will never go away. You can only manage it. Well, and if you do, you get kind of like right. more of the upsides and less of the downsides. And for example, that's like one that I find a lot because when you try and solve a polarity, you drive yourself insane because it can't be solved. In terms of mental models, there's tons and tons and tons I could think of. I mean, <clears throat> Uh, you know, one, I think that I, I come back to a lot is, uh, the idea of uh, thinking on the margin. So this is like from economics, but just the idea that, um, you always want to be evaluating the, the value of the next Mm, decision. mm -hmm. So it's not just like on average, has this worked for me? It's, uh, like, is the, is doing, doing it one more going to be valuable. And I think that's helpful because, um, the averages are more salient. Mm, yep. You know, that's the thing that we notice is that like this, this kind of thing has tended to work for me in the past, or this kind of thing has tended to not work. Or, whereas the margin is sort of like, if I do one more of this, what's mm-hmm. the, what's the benefit? What's the value? And I think that's actually shifted my, my career thinking in some ways. So for instance, you know, I don't see myself doing a lot of like the kind of ultra learning projects that I did in the beginning. Part of it is we're talking about is the context is, of the internet yeah, has shifted, yeah. but also part of it is that, uh, it has much less marginal value. You know, like, um, when you're doing the first mm-hmm. few, they are a lot of effort, but they have a lot of reward, but then doing number seven, not so mm-hmm. much. And so for me, that's like my learning projects. I'm shifting way more to like doing research for books and stuff because that has like kind of actual instrumental mm-hmm. value in terms of I can use it to, to help people as opposed to just, you know, this is a stunt or something. So that's an example where marginal thinking has, has um, influenced how I think about things. Nice, nice. Yeah, a, a similar question or, or maybe a follow on to that is, you know, it, you talked about how the context of the internet has really shifted a lot and the things you're working on are shifting. Yeah. What is what is your when you think about you know your next phase of your career whether it's a year or three years whatever mm-hmm. like what do you want to create what do you, what's success look like for you in this next phase? Well, I think 
you know, this is, uh, we'll see, we'll see whether this is, this happens, but my, my ambition would be to try to write books. I think that, uh, at this phase, the way I see it is that that's something I'd like to be able to do. And, and maybe I don't want to be overly committal about that because I think the thing that really draws me into writing books is the doing deep research and working on an idea and collecting it and pulling it all together. Um, now that can always take multiple forms. So maybe, maybe it won't be like traditional publishing, uh, you know, just that'll depend on my own experience, but I feel like that's where I'd like to go. Um, I, I really think that the kind of the work that goes into a book, the work that goes into, you know, spending lots and lots and lots of time thinking about it and running it over your head and trying different variations and reorganizing it, um, is a kind of beneficial work for the reader. You know, the, the hardest books to write are the best to read because they're the ones that, you know, that mental work has been done Mm -hmm, for the mm -hmm. reader so that they can kind of just digest it easily. And so, you know, the greatest compliment I think I got, which in some cases sounds a little bit like a backhanded compliment was like, Oh yeah, your book was an easy read. (laughs) Well, it's an easy read because I had to <laughs> work very hard writing it. Um, you know, uh, you, yeah, I can tell you the amount of academic books I wrote that were uh, hard reads. They were not, they're not easy reads, but it's not always because the ideas are so deeply profound, but also just because maybe there was less effort put in, um, you know, presenting them. And so I think uh, that's something that I really tried to do is to see, you know, spend that effort distilling it. And I think it's something that's hard to do on like a weekly writing schedule. Like I do my best when I'm writing, but it's usually little bits and pieces. It's mm. not, it's not something cohesive. And so that's something I'd like to do uh, in the future. We'll see. We'll awesome. see if it happens. Awesome. Well, I will be rooting for you and following along eagerly. Well, Scott, first of all, thank you so much for the conversation for being here. This has been really, really fun. Yeah. And I know um, on behalf of the listener that you've really helped clarify a lot of things on, on uh, one of the most important topics I think anybody can, can really engage with. So thank you. Um, what do you, what would you like to leave the listener with and, and where can people, uh, where would you direct people to follow along with your journey? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously they can check out the book, um, ultra learning, uh, you know, Amazon audible, wherever you want to uh, get your books from. Um, and also they can go to my blog, scottychung.com. So there's thousands of articles there about learning and productivity and all the things that we've been talking about and they can, you know, follow more with you there and anything that I'd leave off with. Well, I don't know. We've been talking about a lot of technical kind of scientific sort of things with learning, but I think one of the things that I is really core in my beliefs about um, the world is that we know far less than we think we do. And this includes ourselves. And I think one of the sort of fallacies a little bit of a lot of self-improvement is this idea that, well, the way that you achieve things is through sort of this kind of certitude that like, you know, Mm. something and that you just go out and do it. Whereas I think it's curiosity. It's that you don't know something is that why you do it. You don't know what you're capable of. You don't know what you could do. You know what I mean? That, That we have such limited past experiences and we, we draw just an unreasonable amount of confidence in what we're capable of from that. And so people often view that kind of uncertainty in a negative light, but I think it's just fundamentally very positive. It's something that um, is a real source of energy because when you don't know what you can do, then you really like, there's just a blank canvas there. There's a lot of stuff that you could try out. So I think that kind of attitude of, of not being sure what you can do, not being sure what you're capable of is, is, is liberating in, in some ways. Mm. Awesome. Awesome. I love that. What a, what a beautiful place to end it. Scott, thanks again for being here and uh, really excited to follow the journey. So thanks. 
All right. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners, and it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at makethingsthatmatter.com. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. See you out there.